Good afternoon. Welcome to Embargoed, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me today is my friend, colleague, and co-host for today, Dara Fernandez-Perez, who is the is a general counsel at Honeywell. And um, I am assuming that everyone knows that everything we say, or the opinions are all our own. It's not legal advice. We're not acting for any organization other than ourselves. And with that, uh, welcome, Dara. We're really excited to have you. Well, thank you, Tim. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, not a challenging topic at all. So. No, not no, no challenge whatsoever. But I wanted to do this, and I'm very excited to do this, um, in the wake of a conference that we co-chaired on sanctions mm-hmm. in Amsterdam last week. Uh, and I, I, I thought that you know the conversations were very good, the timing was very good, and the energy was very good. And I really wanted to try and recreate some of that for the podcast. Um, and and I think you know one of the things that it was good to be in a room with, you know, in-house counsel and outside counsel and regulators um, to just kind of relive what the last year and a half has been like in the trade community because it has been a really um, challenging and interesting time. And so I wanted to just throw out the first question for you to just kind of talk a little bit about where we've been and where, where we're going with the Russian sanctions. Not a, not a small question, but a big question, but take it where you like. Well, I think, and, and it was, I guess I echo your excitement about the week that we just spent in, in Amsterdam. I think, I think the conversation could not have come at a better time and it could not have come to a better jurisdiction um, than, than the EU because, as, as you know, our sanctions compliance protocols are in a different level of, of maturity from what we have in the U.S. So I was extremely excited to welcome so many, um, so many experts in the field into the EU. So having the spotlight in, in the EU was, was great from my perspective. I think one of the reflections that I've that I continue to make and and I think becomes even more true after the conversations we had from uh, from from regulators and from in-house and out in and outside counsel is this has been despite all the human the, the the absolute human catastrophe that this is that that is the underlying cause of of sanctions it has been an extremely difficult year for all of us to try to manage so it's been difficult for for in-house to understand what the what the regs say it's been difficult for regulators to put out the the right level of regs and the right level of guidance it's been difficult for outside counsel to try to give advice on new new bodies of law or new ways of thinking about about sanctions so i think what i what i take and as what as a as a big learning from the year is We've all been trying to swim through a very complex ecosystem. And and the best thing or the thing that has helped me the most is trying to put myself in the shoes of the other and, and trying to, to, to be very conscious about my empathy of where other people are coming from to to get me through the next day and the next set of regulations, you know, because it's it's very easy to say, well, regulation doesn't have enough context or um, in-house counsel don't understand how to comply or they haven't complied enough or they haven't implemented enough controls. I think we've all been trying 
very hard. Um, and I think that's what I take as the biggest learning from 2022. Yeah, I, I think that for me, it really has been a has been a new experience in the sanctions world and in, mm -hmm. in the trade world generally, because we have so many different players from around the world that are part of it. And and I, I think, you know, you, you've you, your background, you're, you're in, uh, you know, in the UK and the EU now. But your background has also got some, you know, touched on the US quite a bit, too. Mm -hmm. And from the US side, it really has been kind of sanctions has been kind of a lonely practice in the sense that the US regulators have really occupied the field for most of the last 10 years in a way that the EU regulators and the UK regulators really didn't. Last year and a half, um, UK and EU sanctions have become extremely important. And, you know, so, so actually being able to work through and kind of share this challenging environment with my colleagues from the EU and the UK, like you and others, and um, from the US, and then also with a whole new host of regulators um, that really were, you know, certainly um, trying hard to do their jobs, but may, may not have had as much attention or authority or priority as they have now. It's been really a, an interesting time. And I think that was part of what was so exciting about the Amsterdam conference. I mean, it's been a terrible trying time. The timing of these regulations has been more than any, I mean, what, what the EU just coming out with the 11th package of regulations in a year and a half, and these are all big and complex and they changed the landscape mm -hmm. quite a bit. But then just the multi-jurisdictional na nature of it has been extremely confusing. And I, I think for somebody like you in a, co in a multinational company, the, 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 the number of laws that you have to keep up with has to just be really challenging. It is. And, and I have to echo what, what you have said about the... So I moved to the UK in 2016 and, and my background is very much US practice. So... Um, I, I came into uh, into the UK at a time where sanctions compliance was not as hot of a topic. I always thought it was, but it wasn't necessarily a hot topic in the in the jurisdiction or in the region. So having the focus on sanctions compliance from the EU and the UK has made at least it's made me feel this sense of companionship. And and I I agree with you that the way that we're we're analyzing this now cross jurisdictionally is something that I had never seen before, nor did I think I would get to see it in my lifetime. Um, I think that that trying to, the, the number of regulations that you have to be on top of, I don't know that it's different from what, in, from what um, external counsel need to do, because in-house you may have to know um, a mile wide, but an inch deep whereas so so I don't know that the complexity is is necessarily different but what I find with with the EU that is difficult and with EU UK US I guess I put those three as the three as three key pillars of sanctions compliance is they're they tend to say very they, they go about it similarly but there, there are nuances that are quite different and quite dangerous. And I think for those the, for those people listening who might speak Romance languages or Roman or Latin based languages, it's like speaking French, Portuguese, and Spanish, and they have similar roots, they have a, a similar formulas, 
but the the reality is that it, they can be dangerously different. And so I think trying to get across those nuances, trying to get across those differences where there isn't as much jurisprudence in every jurisdiction can be quite challenging. And and I think, you know, we, we talked about this the other day, Tim, how it 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 calls for trying to focus on that congressional intent, or in this case, the regulatory intent of a regulation. And I have, you get to do that maybe a lot more than I would in other areas of law. Yeah, I mean, and that is what I think has been interesting to watch from the US side is that because the, the EU and the UK were not as active in the past and not as big a priority, I think, for their national governments or for the, you know, for the EU combined government. You don't have the sorts of guidance and the sorts of experience in coming up with regulations that you do in the US. I mean, the US has gone through this process in the last 20 years, but it's just a lot more experienced and, and practitioners kind of have a baseline for, well, here's what this really means when OFAC says X. And I think that that, you know, you're in kind of a brave new world in, in the UK and in the EU where you're trying to figure out what does the EU commission mean when it says X? What does OFSI mean when it says X? And there's a lot less, you know, ground that's been tread, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I think the rules of the game um, are much more established in the US, whereas in the EU and the UK, the rules of the game sometimes are being drafted as as we play. So so that is that is tough. It's also I think it also leaves an it's an exciting opportunity to to help develop good processes and good procedures, right? And it it opens up the doors to cross industry communi- communication and collaboration in a way that maybe in the US it's already well too set up and and you might not have that. And in fact, I think part of what made the conference so unique the other day is that sense of community that we were able to build in a very short period of time and kind of that camaraderie and companionship regardless of the industry you came from and whether you were um public, private, or, or, or consultancy. Right. Yeah. So I think, so I think that the level of, you know, the, the, the point in time that we are in sanctions compliance in Europe and UK has advantages and disadvantages, of course. Um, And are you seeing some of the infrastructure being built up in say the UK and the EU in terms of trade associations, in terms of kind of private public partnership because the US has regulators where they ha- they take input from certain private industry groups that you know don't come in with an agenda but it's more of like you know OFAC practitioners who come in and say here's what we think you know it would be really helpful that you would clarify and sometimes OFAC does it and sometimes mm-hmm. OFAC doesn't but it's kind of a good back and forth are you seeing those sorts of things developing in the UK and the EU I'm de- I'm definitely Tim seeing it in the UK um I think also in in the EU, although I, because I sit in London, I um, my my field vision is much closer to the UK. So I know in the UK there are definitely trade associations that 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 engage in those conversations that um, and the, the regulatory bodies have people specifically focused on developing those relationships with the industry to be able to gather the relevant information to to then output the right level of of guidance and and I think we're seeing this in particular play, in particular 
playing out in the diversion risk notices that we've been seeing in the in the circumvention notices. I think a lot of there's been a lot of conversation cross industry, especially in the UK. I think one of the things that makes it complicated for the EU is that even though we talk about the Commission as one body and we talk about the EU as if it was a confederation of states, the reality is that they're all independent sovereign nations and they're member states. And so the way of implementing sanctions compliance or the way of implementing sanctions enforcement is quite tricky, right? Because it there isn't a centralized body for enforcement in the EU. I know there's been lots of talk about that and, you know, I'm sure there are arguments for and against, and, and I'm not going to say what I, what I think we should have, but, um, but I think that the EU is a very complex, it, it's a very complex infrastructure, you know, nothing to do with sanctions, but when you try to unify all the member states on something where the level of maturity, the inherent level of maturity is quite different. Um, it, it's it's complex. And so you end up looking at rules or looking at transactions. Um, and, and this is a cross industry. So um, all my colleagues who practice this area would agree. You might look at things that have a touch point in Germany, Cyprus, Spain, UK, and US, and your way of of navigating each one of those is quite quite different, but you cannot navigate them as an EU. Um, and that's I think I think that's a complex um, concept. Yeah, I mean, I, I just can't imagine the complexity that's involved with, okay, you have a regulator that sits in Brussels, but you have mm-hmm. 30 different enforcers. I mean, imagine OFAC was dependent upon enforcement with the 50 states, exactly. right? And so, you know, what, what would you what would you get out of that? And just what a mind-boggling enforcement mm-hmm. challenge that would be. Right. Look at, let's say you take an employment issue that is not a federal, not a federal um, question, but a, but an issue of state. And you try to get all 50 states to agree. California and Alabama are probably going to come out differently, aren't they? So I, I think you have, it's really not that different in, in the EU and I, not to overgeneralize, but I think that's, that's kind of the type of complexity where, not every country or not every member state has a designated enforcement body. Not every country has a codified civil enforcement mechanism. For example, some might have just a criminal enforcement mechanism, and therefore that makes it very, there are great discrepancies, right, in criminal enforcement versus civil enforcement. So it's quite complex. And I think a lot of times regulators end up writing what, what they can <laughs> and right. and you know external counsel end up advising on what's kind of available and i think companies end up making risk-based decisions on the best judgment yeah i mean because you know and, and I, I i i can't say that i'm familiar with the details of lots of the eu sanctions regs although i've seen enough of them and the they read a lot like a lot more like um 
our statutes do here in the United States, which are often the product of compromise. And so with compromise, what comes is this ambiguity where people basically, you know, settle on ambiguous terms that mean one thing to one person who votes for them and another thing to another person who votes for them. And then it's kind of mm-hmm. here, it's mostly for the courts and the administrative agencies to figure out. I mean, the, with the EU you know, laws looking like that, and then having 30 different enforcers who get to determine what these vague terms mean. I mean, it seems like you might have essentially a different set of sanctions in every EU jurisdiction, depending upon how the enforcer reads it, which has got to make it really hard, you know, as as in-house counsel that has to deal in those jurisdictions to say, okay, what does this reg mean? Oh, well, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm in, today I'm in Hungary, so it means X in Hungary, and different day you're in Lithuania, or a different day you're in Germany, and it's going to mean, mm-hmm. the same words are going to mean something different no matter where you are, and that, or depending upon where you are, that's got to be, that's got to make it a lot more challenging, both for you know compliance purposes, but also from the commission in, in Brussels to determine like what the next sanctions package will be, because it's hard to figure out what the last one was. Yeah, and how to provide the right level of guidance at an EU level when the way to implement or you know your your communication channels in every sovereign state might take very different views. I, I think you may have a similar set of facts with a license application in one country that is granted and in a different member state that is denied, for example. And there is no mechanism to to marry those, right? right. So it, it, it can be quite tri- it can be quite tricky, but I think, like I was saying at the very beginning, one of the things I've learned is I've, I've learned to try to be thoughtful of the challenges that my the person sitting next to me has been facing. And I think for a lot of countries where sanctions compliance was not at the top of the agenda, this has been a very, very steep learning curve. And so yeah. the way that they're implementing it internally in their in their country this must have gotten lots of very difficult conversations. We're talking about an extremely technical area of law, right? And an area of law that I think is in the, it's, it's quite complex to, to navigate, not just because the technical area is complex, but because you have so many conflict of law issues and it's so tied to geopolitics that it becomes a very difficult game of chess. So I think for for anyone who wasn't used to it before, before the beginning of 2022, before the invasion, it has been a very steep learning curve. Yeah. I mean, I'm working on a couple of investigations right now where it's really hard to tell whether U.S. law applies, Canadian law applies, Dutch law applies, EU law applies, like what the actual governing law is, is very tough. And this is actually, for me anyway, a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, because it used to be before February, 2022, that you might have those same issues, but you just didn't care that much because what you knew was that if it's a sanctions issue, you really just needed to figure out what US law was, assume that that was the governing law and the enforcement risk from the other jurisdictions if they even had sanctions in the same area, it was relatively low. And if you were good with the U.S., you were probably good everywhere else. And now it's just like 
we're really struggling in these investigations to really try and figure out who whose law applies because many of the EU regulations or many of the Canadian or many of the UK regulations are stricter than the ones in the US or apply to different types of products or different types of services than the ones in the US more broadly. So we have some situations where if the US law governs, there's not a problem. But mm -hmm. if a different law governs, that, that law regulates the product or the service much more strictly with respect to Russia than the US does. I think that's what this new package that came out after the conference was designed to at least get at. I mean, the US enforcer has even said, we are in, in the export control side, we're adding new products because we want to close the gaps between us and the EU, which are already regulating these products and licensing these products for export to Russia, but the US isn't. So it's it's really become so much more challenging to investigate these issues, to, I mean, as you pointed out, to deal with licensing in these issues. Have you found that the, I, I'll tell you what I was struck with at the conference. The, the EU regulators and the UK regulators that I met seemed very interested in outside perspectives in a way that they really seem to want to learn from um, the outside counsel and from other practitioners. And, and I think it's probably in part because of the experience level, but for whatever reason, I mean, OFAC is not in the learning, it doesn't view itself anyway. I mean, you can debate whether it is, should be in the learning process, but it is, is does not consider itself to be kind of in the learning process. And so it doesn't feel like I think it has a lot to learn from the outside, maybe as to how its regs are being applied, but as not as to how to do its job. But I felt like I was getting, you know, questions where the regulators were struggling with, maybe we should do it this way and maybe we should do it that way. Not on, you know, because of an industry input, but more on a, like, we don't have as much experience in enforcing and providing guidance and that sort of thing. I mean, has that been your experience that the, the EU regulators and the UK regulators feel like, and, and this is in a good way, I thought this was great, they feel like they have a lot to learn and they want to talk to people who've been doing this longer than they have? So I, I can't speak for all of them, obviously, because I haven't met them all, but right. um, but I, I do think that it has. It also has to do with some of the cultural norms of enforcement generally. I believe that yes, there is a maturity, or maybe not a maturity, but just years of experience, right? Calendar years of experience that say, "Well, I've been doing this for two years. You've been doing this for twenty. Please tell me how you've seen this fail or be successful." So I think there's a little bit of that, and and I think there's quite a lot of humility in asking those questions. And yes, I have seen that surprisingly more in the UK EU than I've than I ever saw in, in the US. But I also think it's just the way that the EU UK go about diplomacy as well generally and they go about enforcement. I mean you see in any other area of financial crime, the way the enforcement in, in the UK and in the EU is quite different from the from the way that enforcement is is dealt with at a DOJ or an SEC, even if you have very similar set of facts, even when you have multi-party settlement or multi-party enforcement uh, investigations and, and you have your EU counterparts and, and your US collaborating, it's a different way of approaching enforcement. So I think maybe that's got something to do with it as well. Like enforcement might not be so as focused on 
causing or causing pain as it might be deterrence, learning lessons. I mean, I, I think in, right. in, in the UK in particular, you get a lot of, um, uh, you get a lot of warning. My understanding from, from the regulators is that they, they give a lot of warning notices and they, even in, in my prior life before, before Honeywell, I was at a different company and it was financial services. So some of the financial services regulators would, um, would ask that you come in not with a voluntary, not with a VSD mechanism like we do in the UK, but very, in the US, sorry, but very much a raise your hand. Just tell us if you think there might be an issue. It's not necessarily file a formal VSD for potential enforcement or it's, right. it's just much more of a conversation. So I think some of it is we might not know as much as you do and we we recognize that and we're humble and we're going to ask you. But I think another part is just how they approach enforcement generally. Yeah, no, I I found that refreshing because the whole mm. point, theoretically anyway, of sanctions is to change behavior. And if you want to change behavior, you kind of work with the people that you're trying to, you know, get to implement the sanctions to try and make sure they understand them, to try to make sure that they're complying and not really to play a game of gotcha. And so, you know, the the, the, the downside of a more, and I, I think this has happened, you know, really over the course of the last 10 years or so, I, I think before that probably OFAC had a, had a mindset um, that was more collaborative, but it's moved into kind of an adversarial posture where it's kind of like DOJ and kind of like BIS in the sense that they are the regulators and you are the regulated and you basically are hoping that you never have to deal with them. And when you do have to deal with them, it's often not going to be very pleasant because it's going to be slow and they're not going to tell you a lot what's going on. That's not to, you know, I have many friends in OFAC, they're wonderful people, but I think as an agency, their policy has always been, we're a national security agency, we're not going to be consumer friendly, we're going to tell you what to do and hopefully you're going to do it. And if you don't, you can get into big trouble. And I think that's, that's, you know, it's a helpful mindset if you want to scare a lot of people, but if you actually want kind of people to work with you and kind of nudge them along, it's not all that helpful because if people are scared to come talk to you because they're worried that they might get in trouble if they tell you something, slip up and tell you something you don't like, um, you're not going to, they're going to kind of They'll, they'll 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 obviously take your calls when you call them and answer mm -hmm. your subpoenas when you send them, but they're not going to be go, going and looking for you to be friendly. But isn't that also part of the nature of of the time that we're in? So I think one there there might be a really good reason why you want companies or you you know, you want companies to be afraid of of the of enforcement of a law and you can argue that without that fear maybe some of those laws wouldn't be followed as much as they are right yeah. so i think yeah. there, there there is a potential argument for that i think now though part of maybe the reason for that the the posture here is also because of the underlying reason for the sanctions and the need to be effective and efficient Right. I, I think that might also shift. I, I don't know whether that shift has happened as much in the U.S., but here you definitely can see that public, the public opinion of unity against invasion translating into rules, 
you know, regulations to try to minimize the impact of that invasion. And therefore, it, I think that's just naturally or organically leading into some of that collaboration. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I, I think that and, and I actually think that um, OFAC in the Russia sanctions has been a lot more collaborative. It hasn't really mm-hmm. been focused on these kind of, you know, harsh enforcement actions. It's been much more of a um, it, it's been much more interested in kind of changing behavior than it has been, I'd say, in some of the other programs. And I think you're right. I, I think that the part of the reason that the enforcers have been more effective is because they have much more public support for these sanctions. And also, you know, because they're working together. I, I, I think the Iran sanctions are a good example of kind of what a mess you can make when one country thinks that this is the most important priority, that sanctions are the most important priority in the world. And other countries think, well, why are we having sanctions? We had a deal to get rid of sanctions. And then, you know, other countries think that sanctions aren't appropriate at all. And you have this kind of mix of views towards the sanctions. It does create kind of a mess when you have a block of countries, the the US and the EU and, and the G7 generally that are unified as to the underlying purpose. And then like, it's not just the governments are unified. There, there's pretty strong support in the public in the US and certainly in, the, in Europe from what I've seen in the UK for some aggressive action short of war with, to, to, to signal disapproval of the invasion. So you have a lot of, I think, company collaboration in a way that you might not get when it's either some obscure sanctions program or one that's more controversial. Yeah. I think, I think the overall um, goal of the, of the Russian sanctions program is something that you'll have a hard time finding people against. Right. Um, right. Which is part of, is probably part of the reason why you've been able to get 11 packages or 11 amendments to the sanctions in the European Union who probably have a hard time agreeing on whether um, brown is brown and red is red. <laughs> so I, exactly. I think I think that's very telling of the amount of unanimous support for for this nonviolent form of of public policy. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I think, you know, I did want to switch to kind of the big story that came out after the conference, but that, you know, we were there with some of the regulators who were telling that the, telling us that this was imminent. It wasn't a big secret, mm-hmm. but but I think that we got a lot of insight beforehand into the new package of sanctions, which came out. I think our conference finished on a Tuesday and these sanctions came out on, I think, last Friday and you know, we're recording today. It's the 26th of May, so it's not mm-hmm. that, that long ago. Um, I guess first impressions from some of these sanctions from the EU and the UK side? Well, I think I, um, I have a paragraph or two to still get through. I'll, I'll confess, <laughs> I'll, I'll but, um, but I think what, what is telling and what we, what I got out of the conference, which I see coming through in the regs is that, um, that collaboration and support to, focus on evasion and circumvention. I think that is the way that these sanctions or the, the, the way that regulations have had to go to try to create the impact that it needed 
has been very different from your traditional financial sanctions, right? It has been very different from just identifying or adding people to the SDN list or adding people to the SI, um, to the sectoral sanctions. They've had to go in ways that is going to create the necessary impact. And when, when they, you know, they, they issue, assess, reassess, reissue, reassess. I, I think now what, where they're, where they're landing is, we have probably sanctioned what we could. I don't know that we have many more individual things to, or individual people to sanction. Now we need to focus on how those goods, money, products are actually still making it through. Um, and I think that's that, that was kind of the focus of the conversation that we had. And and I think that's that's what I take very much from this package. And granted, the you the U.S. had come out with some of the red flags for for circumvention, but I think in the U.K. guidance and 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 what we are seeing of the EU, the focus on circumvention has been quite telling, and and, yeah. and the identification of specific products, right? Yep. No, I I mean I think that it's kind of the next level sanctions is how I viewed it. I mean, I, first I I agree with you. I was struck by you know, how the regulators were very candid at the conference that the new package of sanctions was going to be focused on circumvention and diversion and that that was going to be the big issue. And we'd seen this in the press um, and and in some of the governmental statements from the U.S. for a while, they, you know, there have been trips to countries that are on the Russian border to talk to the governments there about the circumvention issue. It does strike me as kind of next level stuff because I think you're exactly right. What the first you know, year and a half of sanctions seem to be about, I mean, first they start with the banks because that's been OFAC's experience that the financials, if you want to really have an effective set of sanctions, you kind of go hard at the financial system in the sanctioned country. And so the first kind of, you know, real hard focus was on trying to make sure that payments going in and out of Russia were very difficult um, and were scrutinized considerably. And I can tell you that's been my experience and my client's experience in terms of, um, you know, if there are if there are legitimate issues that you are able to pay for in Russia, it has still become very, very difficult to get those payments through. Um, and that I think is not a coincidence. I think that basically it was a, the financial system is going to focus hard on making sure that the sanctions are enforced with respect to Russia and that it's going to be very hard to get non-compliant payments in and out. That was a, a real focus of the first year. And then obviously if you're you know, a sanctions package is designed to go after um, a military action. You have sanctions that are focused on the military. And, and so that was really the first year of really trying to get that right. But I think what happened was you developed a whole kind of gray economy that was going around the sanctions because the sanctions were effective, right? They couldn't, you couldn't go directly anymore. And the things that you wanted to do directly weren't happening. And so now there's kind of this second wave of, okay, well, now that people are going around the sanctions, how do we deal with that? And I think that the enforcers are understandably kind of struggling to get that right too, because it sounds like 
at least the perception within government was that they were taking slightly different approaches and that they wanted to coordinate even better, which again is so new for sanctions policy that you've got the EU and the UK and the US kind of not just coordinating, but like tweaking the coordination so that if one country gets ahead of the other, they make sure to get all aligned so that the, the so that the, the policy doesn't have any holes in it. Yeah, I, you know what I think is also difficult about circumvention? One, one I, the great thing is I, I think governments, especially on this side of the, the Atlantic, are, are quite keen on collaborating. They're quite keen on raising, raise your hand to the regulator. They're quite keen on being an enabler of compliance. So I think that's that's really nice. And I'm seeing that on the circumvention space, maybe more so than I have seen in any other parts of, of sanctions compliance. But I think one of the difficulties about circumvention is that it takes almost two different skill sets to do it right. One is you need to have your regulatory subject matter expertise over sanctions. And two, you have to have the acumen of fraud prevention to define typologies um, and to identify how things may may be how the rules may be circumvented so i think <clears throat> i think it takes a little bit of a uh, a new set of soft skills to yep. be able to come up with the right plan and and be comfortable that your plan today might not be your plan tomorrow or the next day because that's how fraud works it's you know in my prior life i <clears throat> i was also head of fraud prevention so <clears throat> to me seeing some of the circumvention notices coming out in some of the things I read, I I see clearly kind of that other skill set. I'm having to dust it off to to bring back yep. up. No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think that the first year or so it was just kind of straightforward. We're gonna here's mm -hmm. the industries we're gonna target and we're, you know, we're looking at transactions that aren't aren't, you know, aren't subtle at all. It's a transaction involving some sanctioned party in Russia that's going through a sanctioned bank. We're trying to stop those. We're going to catch those. And that part, you know, it was a big job because I don't think that the the West has ever tried to take on a sanctions program as big as Russia. And it seems like the Russian economy was much more intertwined with, particularly with the EU and, and the UK, but also with the US than I think most people would have imagined at the start of the invasion. Yeah, it's certainly a lot more than I was even aware of before the start of the the sanctions packages coming out and having to analyze things. So, yeah, I, I just find circumvention in particular very interesting because I think it calls in for, I'm thinking even an anti, from an anti-money laundering perspective because in circumvention, some of the typologies involve multiple layers of... Right. Um, of legal entity set up and, and, and understanding ultimate beneficial ownership information in a way that maybe from a sanctions perspective, it wasn't as, as priority right before the invasion. It became a bit of a priority, but it was easier to identify, I think. And now to get things, to get money, to get goods, to get, re, you know, parts to repair goods, 
you're going to have to be very, very creative, right? And so, so I think your investigative hat just comes in in a, in a very different way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that, um, you know, before you were just kind of going at transactions that were kind of open and notorious. And now it is like the fraud detection. You've got people who are trying to deal with Russia, but disguise that they're dealing with Russia. And so they're coming up with creative ways to get transactions through and products through that um, at the beginning, you didn't need to worry about it because there were so many other much more kind of open um, mm -hmm. transactions that you could deal with. And so the these more subtle transactions weren't as big a concern. But now I, I think that the sign that they're going after diversion and circumvention is a signal that they feel like they've kind of tighten the spigots as much as they can on the direct and obvious transactions. And now they're going after the the more subtle ones, but it does require a completely different skill because by definition, you've got parties that are trying to hide what they're doing. And so it becomes a lot harder to ferret out kind of what's happening, what products are in demand, what, um, you know, basically what it is that, uh, that is going on has become much more difficult. And, and it, I think it is, taxed the the skill set of the regulators and that's why you see some some distance or you saw some distance before this sanctions package came out as to, to what products should be regulated because some i think some governments were seeing diversion with respect to certain products so they'd put them on a you know a list of products that required a license and other governments weren't seeing that so they wouldn't do that and so you know investigation skills have become much more key in terms of figuring out what the new regulations are even going to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've been reading some of the latest um, Financial Times articles and, and, and others, New York Times, on, on the amount of trade that's still taking place, the amount of products that still make it through, right? And, yep. and the ghost, what they're calling the ghost trading of... Uh, goods going from the EU into supposedly a different European country, but somehow the European country claims not to have received any of those goods. So um, in wondering where those goods have landed. So I, I think there's a really big, I, I think there's a big ocean of, of circumvention. And, and that's why the message from the regulator to one, focus on circumvention risk. And two, to try collaboration as much as you can, because one is, I don't necessarily think circumvention is something that you can have a perfect prevention system for. Yeah, no, you know? I, I, yeah, I agree a hundred percent, and I think what, but, but what you can do is enlist kind of the corporate world in the in the the battle against circumvention right. by essentially make you know making acts that look like circumvention both prohibited but also putting everyone on notice of what those are because i have to say that you know for companies that didn't have advanced trade compliance systems before this all happened the idea that selling to say turkey meant that potentially that was really a sale to russia or to iran was not really on the was not really in their, you know, within their vocabulary, they they knew you couldn't sell to Russia, 
but why are you coming after me or why are you talking to me about what I'm doing in Turkey or UAE or other co countries like that? And now it, because of the high profile nature of this issue, it really does you know, enlist a, a, a much larger enforcement force because you have compliance groups that are now on the lookout for these sorts of things. And so they know that when you hear Turkey or Kazakhstan, that that could be a gateway for items to go into Russia, and so they're on the alert for it, and that's much more effective than having you know the 50 or so enforcers in the EU kind of looking at this, or the hundreds of enforcers in the US looking at this. If you have the entire corporate world looking at this, you're going to stop a lot more transactions than you would otherwise. Yeah, and that's how you can effectuate the change, right? That's how you can create the impact is by having a lot of a lot of people. If you have 10 hands doing the job, then they're going to do more work than just two hands, right? I, I do think that there is a level of, I don't know what you have seen in your in your experience, but in mine, the, the level of maturity of trade compliance and, and sanctions compliance in particular on this side of the pond is, is not consistent across industries and is not consistent across different, um, different size organizations. And so... I think there's a little bit of work and this has this is something that we we have shared with with regulators in the past that there's some work there's a grassroots effort to make sure that the message is out and clear beyond the notices and so that communication across industry bodies the, the going to going to events going to conferences talking to people is really key to to start driving the awareness and and to and to drive the the maturity and the exposure of the issue because I agree with you Tim I don't think that the level of even in companies where maybe their trade compliance was very robust and very mature I don't necessarily think any trade compliance system was 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 ready for this stress test Yes. Right. And and we saw that it's not that different from the stress test of COVID to systems and supply chain. You know, you, regardless yeah. of how much you had planned, no one was really ready for that. I think this is a I can draw some parallels to this. And and again, there's a big role for regulators to play in making sure that the message is out and making sure that they become available to industry so they can, there can be good good information sharing and intelligence sharing. Yeah, but I and think I, we have a I think we have a good way to go yet. Yeah, no, I think the COVID analogy is a really good one, both because it, it has forced us to kind of contemplate these scenarios that I don't think anybody ever really planned for. And and also because these scenarios lasted a lot longer than anybody had really planned for, right? I mean, you don't just shut down when you have COVID. You shut down for two years or, or more. And, you know, this with the invasion, I, you know, at least as I understand it, even a lot of the outside military institutions were suggesting that this was not going to be a very long drawn out battle. They thought that Russia would win relatively quickly and, and, and that it wouldn't be drawn out. But that's also been part of the challenge from a sanctions perspective, because, you know, the reason that we're up to 11 packages is that, that, that the pressure is on to do even more because the war is still going on. If the war had been short, I, I feel certain that the sanctions would have been, you know, calibrated, but they certainly wouldn't have gotten the, the, 
the, the high profile and also the, the urgency that to, to increase that these sanctions have, have gotten because the war would have been over. It's kind of like in 2014, the sanctions were put on to Russia because of its invasion and occupation of Crimea. But after that happened, you didn't see any increase in pressure. They didn't get lifted because Russia was still there. And that would have happened if Russia had actually gone in and conquered Ukraine and overthrown the government there. But you might not have had this ongoing pressure to increase and increase and increase because the war was over. And so we'll, you know, you made your statement and you certainly weren't going to lift them until Russia changed its behavior, but you didn't, it didn't main, continue as a priority for, you know, going on what, 18 months now. So. I, I agree. I think they're the result of the of the current geopolitical situation. And I think they get stricter, wider, more creative, um, more novel as as you need to react to the very life dynamic situation that you're trying to manage or you're trying to deter. So so I agree with you. I think they make I think to a large extent they make a lot of sense, even if sometimes <laughs> It's not necessarily clear how you could take them to action, but um, but that's why it's so. If if you have good communication channels with regulators, then it's it's easy enough to to have the conversation. The problem is when you don't have it or you don't know where you need to go because that also happens. Yep. Yep. Well, of these re- of the recent round, at least on the U.S. side, these engineering and architectural. San- mm. export sanctions that are coming up in, in mid-June. Or they, they're already out, but they're not mm-hmm. going to be effective until mid-June. I, I find those to be among the most challenging in terms of where I think there's going to be a lot of compliance burden. Um, it, anything on your side that you're seeing from the recent round of package that your recent package that you think is going to be very significant? <laughs> So I I agree with you. I think that the the engineering services provision in the in or prohibitions in the U.S. are going to be quite challenging. I think we already have had some learning from the U.K. So the U.K. has something similar. Um, so I, I it's it's interesting because I I agree with you. I think we see in writing the different regulators trying to come up with something similar enough. So where we didn't, so on this side of the pond, the guidance on circumvention had been quite as clear as the US. Well, that's kind of what the new communications are focused on. The engineering services provision, we had kind of already done, therefore now they're cut, they're coming out in the US. So I think when you work across the world and, or you work in multiple jurisdictions, I, I don't necessarily see a country or a jurisdiction coming up to standard of the rest to be necessarily a big impact, if that makes sense. But I do think that that particular prohibition is going to be quite impactful for companies that might not have had to deal with the European prohibitions as much. Right. You know, so I I think there's going to be, and that's a very novel way of implementing sanctions, right, Tim, the the, the engineering services prohibition, they can be quite, it's kind of like the legal services prohibitions that we've that we've had in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. A, it's a big thing to take on when you're talking about services prohibitions because they're very hard to monitor and they're actually very challenging to comply with because you know when you're sending a product and companies have a lot of experience in classifying their products for export for import, um, but but 
classifying a service and is this the sort of service that fits within a particular prohibition, you just aren't thinking as much about that. I mean, we think about legal services now because we've been in the sanctions community for a long time and there have been legal services restrictions with respect to sanctioned parties for a while, certainly in the U.S. and, and how to navigate the general licenses related to that. But it it's other services and the scope of services now that are regulated under Russia sanctions is so broad that it's really hard to think of a service that you can provide to Russia that is outside the scope of some of these provisions. Yeah, you know, and sometimes they they might be intentionally vague, right? They, I think they right. sometimes are vague, not because someone didn't know how to define it, but because it's like, well, you know, if I catch more, then that's fine. Um, so I, I, I think I, I, I really agree with you that defining services is quite complex and you can, and one can say, well, engineering services is just that, services of engineering. But the extent to which different types of services that may support an engineering service, for example, will be defined or could be defined or could be interpreted, that's really complex. So I think maybe the individual service identified in a prohibition is not complex if it's if it's very easy to ascertain this is an engineering service. But I think there's a lot of peripheral services yep. that could potentially be caught up by engineering, even though in our day-to-day we would never think of those as engineering services. And I think that's quite complex. Yeah. Um, and that's true across across jurisdictions. I don't think that's going to be unique to the U.S. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, I want to leave you with the last word on on where we're where we're going from here, or anything else you want to talk about, Tara. Thank you, Tim, and I agree that it's been just a great conversation. Um, I love talking to you about sanctions anytime, any part of the world uh, we find ourselves in. But um, I think I, I think what I see going on in the future is not necessarily easing of sanctions, but rather a continued use of sanctions to drive joint political agendas or joint geopolitical events. And so I I think that this is an area that's not going to be less dynamic. We might not see the same, the same up, upskill as, as, or, or the same I level, um, I, I call it a washing machine spin cycle of, of regulations. But I do think that now that we've seen the collaboration, we're going to continue to use this and it's going to continue to be a very important area of, of, of international diplomacy. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point to end on. I mean, the, these new regulators that are building up infrastructure, that are building up guidance mechanisms, enforcement mechanisms, they're not going anywhere. And it, regardless of what happens in Ukraine, and, and we all hope that that comes to a peaceful resolution soon, but even if it did, these these sanctions authorities are going to probably keep working together and keep building their skill set for the foreseeable future. And, and maybe at some point, hopefully long from now, we'll talk about it, uh, you know, other countries where they are being, being used. 
Yeah, I mean, you see that even like in Magninsky designations or the fact that those designations are now more common or um, uh, approved in the US, in the UK and in the EU. Yeah. You didn't have that before. So I think from a, um, it's, I think it's just been a, a way of, of implementing public policy into yep. um in in a more enforce in an enforcement way that doesn't create or cause it doesn't create violence right so right um, and it's it's easier to enforce i mean you just snap your fingers and there's a designation you don't have to actually go do an extradition and a trial and that sort of thing it's just yeah. like this is our policy you're on a sanctions list and you know at least in the eu and the uk there's actually some process to get off those lists in the us mm -hmm. You know, we could mm -hmm. do a whole nother episode to talk about the lack of process there. <laughs> so, but for now, I think we'll probably yeah. just leave it there. Thank yeah. you for coming on to Embargoed. It was great to have you. Tim, it's been great. It's been great having this conversation with you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Great talking to you, Dara. And Likewise. for everybody, thanks for listening, everybody. And stay sanctions free. Produced by HeartCast Media.